I've talked to thousands of hourly workers. Like they know they're being taken advantage of when they go and get a payday loan. They just don't have any other choice. And they have to, with open eyes, enter into a transaction with a company that they know is taking advantage of them. And so, yeah, trust is the most important thing we'll ever build. Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. On this episode of Transform It Forward, I'm excited to talk with John Schlossberg, co-founder and executive chairman at Even. It's a financial services platform designed from the very beginning to create employee financial well-being. Even is an amazing idea. What if you could design a system to promote financial well-being in your employee population while creating a new class of employer retention tools and all the while chipping away at the opportunity inequality problem that exists? What they've done and how they've done it, and frankly, some of their luck along the way, is an amazing story. John and I chat through the changing relationship between employers and employees, how financial incentives offer a new frontier of benefits, and what Even is doing to transform the fintech industry. John, thanks for joining the show. I've done a couple startups, and it's really amazing to me that you and your co-founders didn't have some long history or shared experience before you came together to fix this thorny problem. How did this all come together? <laughs> That's pretty amazing to me too. I mean, for, for me, it was really about orienting around a specific problem. I was really fortunate to have a sort of a time between jobs where I could sit and um, really think about what I wanted to do with my life to some extent. And I really oriented around this problem of inequality of opportunity because a little bit of my sort of my upbringing and some some things that have happened to me in, in my life. And once I really sort of decided what I wanted to work on, the next step is, well, who do I want to work on it with? And the way that the team came together is, is pretty much just folks that I had met through people I had worked with. And I, it, sort of the, the, the age old adage about referrals being the best way to find good people. I had been friends with an early engineer at Instagram and, and he introduced me to one of his coworkers at Instagram. That was Ryan. We hit it off right away. And as a designer myself and worked with a lot of designers and a lot of engineers, you sort of develop a spidey sense for those 10x people. And I could tell right away that Ryan was that. And then I guess Quentin, Quentin was a little bit more interesting in, in that he was in undergrad at Columbia at the time. And he had written like a blog post on Medium about using cryptocurrency to help migrant workers send money back to their families without paying predatory fees. And even back then, this was like seven years ago at this point, even back then, most writing, most blog posts about cryptocurrency were pretty hard to read but the the way that quentin wrote it was so centered on the humans and the real lived experiences that they had and how the technology could be put to work to improve their lives it was so focused on all that that i was i was really taken aback and it was also really well written which i have found to be pretty strongly correlated with people who tend to be really good at critical thinking. And, and so I 
I reached out to him and I said, Hey, like if I bought you a plane ticket, would you fly to California and meet with me and talk with me about this thing I've been thinking about? <laughs> I put it at like a one out of 100 chance of him even responding but he did. And he was like, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not doing anything. So he, he jumped on a plane and he flew out and we spent a few days together, sort of locked in an office, just talking about uh, the problem space. And his, his clarity of thought was so remarkable that we were able to have these really productive conversations where we actually learned a lot about each other very quickly, especially how we thought about the world and, and uh, our values or how we want to approach living our lives and the, the the values were so aligned that it just made working together so much easier. It's interesting because on this particular podcast and certainly in the world more broadly, there's lots of talk about disruption for business model or for operational efficiency or for customer experience or for employee engagement or whatever. Very rarely does it, does it begin from the point of disruption for purpose. And you wonder if, if by doing that, you, you just sort of created the center of gravity for the right kind of people that would make this come to life. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, for me, it really did, like I said, it really did start with the problem. In fact, the, the first thing I designed was not like an app. It was not a logo for the startup or whatever. It was a business model with incentive alignment because that is what turns a for-profit business into a vehicle for creating purposeful change. And that was one thing that Quinton really understood right away and made me confident that we would have an easy time working together. And and to be fair, like, you know, seven years later, we've had some ups and downs. Like all all startups are, are a roller coaster of one kind or another. And we've definitely had challenges, including interpersonal challenges, learning more about each other and how we work and and figuring that out but at the end of the day like the foundation of alignment and purpose and values is there such that we can you know we might get some details wrong about how we're building the house on on top of that foundation but the house is never going to fall down it's a very inspiring way to look at look at the world and you know it's mind-boggling to me that in most schools in all schools really we don't talk about financial literacy or the importance of starting habits early you know, clearly there's, there is uh, inequality at many different levels. We don't even talk about the value of delayed gratification because we're streaming, you know, through our Instagram feeds and the like. So this massive challenge of too many people who can't save or don't save or, or don't have enough or can't have any hope for a meaningful future, financial future, it's, it's, it's such an enormous challenge. How did you parse it into the problem statement that became a business? So I alluded a little bit earlier to, to like some things in my life that have oriented me towards this problem of inequality of opportunity. And without, without really boring everyone with that story, that suffice to say, like uh, one of the things that I've always been really interested in as I've been growing up is, is it really that like people are super talented or is it like that some people get opportunities handed to them in their life that really are more responsible for the success that they see and um, I studied psychology in, in, in college and, and particularly behavioral psychology and, and really became sort of obsessed with this question of like, is it nature or is it nurture? And you know, my take on it is is that it really does have a lot to do with the opportunities that are given to you. And, and I think we don't fully appreciate that in our society. And so one of the things that I really started to research in that time between jobs was 
what, like, what is the number one predictor of people's success in life? Well, it actually turns out that it's how much money your parents have. And the next predictor isn't even close in terms of how well, how much money your parents have can predict your success in life, where success is defined as your, as the amount of money that you earn over your lifetime. And like, there's, there's questions that people could ask of that. Like, you know, is that the right way to determine success? How much money you have? Like, isn't happiness a better way to determine it? It's like, sure, we could have a philosophical debate about that. But the reality is you need money to do literally everything in our society today. And so that's actually, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good metric of how far you're able to go in achieving the, the life that you dream about. So when I learned about, about that being like the number one determiner of how successful people are, that brought me immediately to, well, you have to help people have more money then. So this is definitely going to be a financial services business of some kind. The reason that it's a for-profit business at all, by the way, is like, again, it, we live in a society where money is everything. There are really strong incentives around for-profit business. And that's why for-profit business right now is the most effective driver of change in our society, whether we like that or not. So knew it was going to be financial services, knew it was going to be a for-profit business, Knew it was going to be VC funded because that just makes the wheel spin faster and allows you to achieve the change more quickly. And the more you learn about this problem of the inequality of opportunity, like the fact that we don't teach anyone how to do any of this stuff, the fact that all the tools that exist are provided by financial institutions that make money when people fail at using those tools, like the problem is getting worse and worse as the years go by. The, the gap is getting deeper and deeper and wider and wider. Like this is an urgent problem. So it, it needs to, <laughs> you need to start making progress pretty quickly. And to be honest with you, that, that was about all I knew is like, look, this is going to be a financial services thing. This is, this is going to be a for-profit business. It's going to be VC funded so we can move quickly. I had no idea how to go about solving the problem, but well, you know, we, I put a team together and, and we started, started working on it. And it probably took us the better part of three years to even wrap our heads around what are what are the pieces of this puzzle and where can we make enough of an impact with such a small team and so limited resources that anyone will care and we can continue to exist, which is sort of the, that's the number one problem you have is a very early stage startup is like, can you get past year two? Yeah, you gotta survive exist? before you can change the world for sure, right? Yeah, so... We, there are there are some things, some ways we got really lucky early on, which I can talk about. But I guess yeah, our story as far as startups go is pretty unusual in that like we we really just oriented around a problem space and got to work. And so, how did that become the role in the payment landscape? Right? Did you work bottom up and say, you know, where where is that predatory lending, and is that the biggest problem, or did you work top down saying, you know, how do I help somebody budget better? Um, through the process in order to give them the chance to maybe put something away and make their kids have a better life than they have. My background is in product design and, and sort of my, my product design philosophy is if you want to actually make something valuable that people will give you the privilege of their attention, you need to solve some problem that they have. So it's generally a good idea to like in the early phases of what, whatever you're trying to do, understand the problems that your potential users have. And in one of the, the, the many hours that Quentin and I spent together very early on, he actually brought up and, and honed in on a problem which I was not familiar with called income volatility, which is a problem that today more than half of the American workforce has to deal with. Since the pandemic 
it's even more than that. It's like two thirds of the workforce. It's this problem of not knowing how much money you're going to have because it changes all the time. If, if you're an hourly worker, you know, you might make $500 one paycheck because you got scheduled for, you know, 25 hours in that pay period you might make 750 bucks the next paycheck because you got scheduled for, you know, 35 hours. That is the volatility, which makes it very hard to, to manage your finances that, you know, even now there are not many solutions to, to help you deal with those problems. And so when we, you know, really learn more about this problem and, and how underserved this part of uh, the population is in dealing with this problem, that's where we started. It really was bottoms up. It's like, okay, here's a problem that we're going to try to solve. And we just started doing a lot of research with, with folks that were dealing with income volatility and we made a bunch of MVPs. You know, we tested them. Most of them were absolute garbage and did, and some of them actually did more harm than good. But we got really, really lucky that as we started to test some of these MVPs, the, the New York Times reached out to us and said, hey, like, what you're doing is kind of interesting. Like, we'd like to write a feature story about it. And at the time, we were like a five-person company. And we had maybe like 20 users because we were just, like I said, just experimenting with a, with a few really bare-bones product ideas. But the New York Times sent a reporter out and he stayed with us for a few days, he like drove around with us as we went and talked to some of these users who were testing our early stuff. And he wrote a feature story about us in the Sunday magazine. And like, that was cool. My mom was really proud about that. And we were like, all right, well, that was, that was a fun experience. Let's go back to work. But then a few months later, a Walmart executive called me on my cell phone out of nowhere and said, Hey, I, I read about what you're doing. Like, I think it's really interesting. How quickly could you offer it to Walmart associates? And I was like, offer what to Walmart associates exactly? Cause we haven't built anything. Uh, and she was like, okay, well, how about we, you know, work out a deal where you can continue your research with our associates so you can ensure whatever you end up building actually helps them. <laughs> That's not supposed to happen to be clear. Like, the largest employer in the world, a private employer, reaching out to like a five-person company and giving them essentially carte blanche access to the largest workforce in the country to do R&D while paying you to do it, like is, is an opportunity that you shouldn't have and that we definitely didn't deserve, but we, we took and ran with. And it, it really allowed us to supercharge how how much and how quickly we were learning about this problem space and the people who are living this life. And it allowed us to build, a, uh, I believe, a much better, much more helpful product and led to the success that we've had today. So, you know, this again, sort of somewhat ironically, you could say, it's like we have only come this far as a, as a business and as a mission-driven startup because of the opportunity that we were given. Well, it wasn't, it's not because like I'm some product genius that was able to just like know what inherently what to do and built the right thing. At first. No, that's not how it works in real life. It wasn't that, that simple LinkedIn invite to some executive at Walmart that everybody dreams of. Yeah. It, and it's, it's interesting, you know, you're not guaranteed when you have those, those big splashes of awareness that happen early in a startup's life, you're not guaranteed to have that do anything. I, I did one 
where we ended up on the NBC nightly news very early in our, in our germination. And while it, you know, it gave us a little pop, it was no guarantee, right? It, it didn't, it didn't answer, you know, the explosive growth that everybody thinks if we only did that. So you guys obviously turned it into something interesting. Did it change your perspective at that point about who the customer really was? Was it the employer at that point who, who obviously saw this as a channel to either help their workforce or provide some differentiated capability or mind to, to change the way opportunities were distributed? Yes. Uh, to be honest with you, I wish that I had the realization then that, hey, like our customer is actually the employer because we knew that we needed to work with employers in order to make something that would actually help people. That, that was part of the original sort of thesis that I had uh, before the company even existed. But the, the actual sort of uh, the amount of work that and the sort of the skills that you need in order to do enterprise was lost on me <laughs> and for a long time. We had, we were, you know, we were in, uh, in Walmart and, and a lot of other large employers and still like we were not an enterprise business because of how relentlessly focused I was on the end user, on the actual human that we were trying to help because that's, that's all I knew to be honest with you. Like, I, you know, in product design, if you're not relentlessly focused on the user, you're not going to succeed. And I, I, I would probably argue that that made the product successful in the early days for sure. But man, did we need to realize earlier than we did that like, Hey, this is an enterprise business. We need to run it like an enterprise business. We need to have just as much attention paid to the enterprise customer as we do the the consumer user, and we got that wrong. I got that wrong early on, and you know I, I've I've corrected it since then. I mean, I hired an enterprise CEO to solve this problem that I, that I didn't you know see and therefore didn't solve because like hey like enterprise wasn't my thing, and and I was I was so focused on what is the problem the consumer has and how do we go about solving it. So what else did you learn? I mean, you, 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 the massive pressure test that comes from Walmart, you know, moving into your house, what was the, um, you know, what did that volume of data, what did that bring to you more quickly? You know, we'll talk about, we'll talk about the B2B side of things or the route to market side of things separately, but what is from a product as a product guy, and you looked at now all of a sudden you had this massive amount of data on your early revs. What did it, what did you learn? It was a pretty humbling experience to be honest with you, because part of what, happens when you get access to like 1.5 million people and then over, o- overnight 50,000 of them start using your thing and then like two weeks later it's 150,000 and you know a month later it's 200,000 when you're dealing with something essential to someone's life like money is especially when they're in a dire moment of desperation where they like are literally sitting in the parking lot trying to get money in order to go in and buy groceries for their kids. It raises the stakes to a point where almost have no choice, but to shut up and listen and then immediately take action. And like, so a lot of what we learned were really invalidations of assumptions that we had built based on like academic research that just didn't map on to what what people actually 
experienced and wanted in real life. And so like, in, to give you a concrete example of that, like we had worked before we launched with Walmart, uh, we'd worked with Walmart's leadership and with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's leadership to design some quote unquote guardrails into the way people used one of our features, which is called Instapay, which is a way for people to get cash immediately from money that they've already earned instead of having to go out and take a payday loan or pawn something to solve some kind of cash flow problem. And like one of those guardrails was that you can only use this thing once per paycheck. And, you know, we felt really good about this. Like we'd literally like talked with director Cordray of the CFPB and he was like, this is a great idea. And Walmart's leadership was like, yeah, this is a great idea. And everyone at even thought, yeah, this is a great idea. And then, you know, when you have someone in their car in a parking lot trying to get money to go buy groceries and they're telling you, you're not letting me get my money because of some arbitrary rule that you thought was a good idea and I'm paying the price, it changes your mind and it changes your mind quickly and it really does spur you to action. And so you take that example and multiply it by like a thousand different versions of that level of story and urgency and, and how essential it is to, to people's lives. And yeah, we, the product has come a long way because our users have told us, you know, what they needed to do. That, that's why, by the way, this was such an immense opportunity because, you know, most startups don't get access to that large of a population that lets you learn that quickly. Yeah, it's funny. If you talk to people who have done these things, they would never tell you the answer is Walmart. They would tell you the answer is Sequoia, right? I just need the money and then I'll figure it out. But the answer here, you did this far in advance, of, of what you could do to really scale. And you got the right information to make the scaling possible. So it's it's a fascinating way that you, you made it come to life. So how's the adoption rate on the end consumer side of things? Do people look at it as, you know, it's a population that's been taken for granted or, or taken advantage of for generations. Do they think this is too good to be true and kind of look at you with a jaundice eye or does this seem like something that's the answer truly to the problem that you thought you were solving? I think there's an, there's an element of, people being, you know, really, really skeptical about that. And reasonably so, by the way, because <laughs> I've talked to probably thousands of, of hourly workers at this point over the seven years of working on this. And, and you know, despite the sort of the stigma that we have in our country today about people who struggle financially, like they're not stupid and they're not irresponsible. Like they know they're being taken advantage of when they go and get a payday loan. They just don't have any other choice. And they have to, with open eyes, enter into a transaction with a company that they know is taking advantage of them. And so like when that is your lived experience, yeah, you're going to not trust everyone you interact with by default because you are so used to being taken advantage of and you just have having no other choice. And so, yeah, trust is the most important thing we'll ever build at even without question. And in early days, we had a difficult time with it. Like really the only way that we grew at an employer was when we got, you know, some kind of authority figure at a physical location, like a Walmart store, for example, if the manager used even, adoption would explode at that store. That's not so much an issue for us today because I think we have enough of a really happy, really engaged user base that 
there's always someone near you at your physical location that you can talk to and, and have them vouch for how legit this is. You know, I think people really do even today, like really rely on, on people in their real life in order to, to make these big decisions more often than not. So we don't, we don't have that problem so much today to where like adoption from a user perspective is not one of our problems. You know, at Walmart, for example, right now, even is the most popular benefit they offer that isn't healthcare. So like there's over 700,000 Walmart associates that actively use it on any given day, 65% of them are, are using the app. So the, the, uh, you know, when I go into a Walmart, I'll often just like stop Walmart associates and, and ask them if they've ever heard of this thing. And I, I don't think I've talked to a Walmart associate who has said they hadn't heard of it, let alone used it in the past six months. So it's really, really prevalent there. And all of the other employers that we work with are on a similar trajectory. They're just less mature because Walmart was the first. We have other problems, don't get me wrong, but getting people to, to, to try this thing and, and use it is actually not, not one of them because the, the product is just, it's just better than the alternatives. And again, that's not because we're magicians, it's because we put ourselves in a position where we, you know, we have data that these direct-to-consumer financial services don't have because we work with the employer. We have the ability to, to move money faster and, and more inexpensively than the direct-to-consumer companies because we're connected to payroll. And most importantly for that trust problem you very reasonably asked about, the employer is paying for it. So it's free. So there's very little downside that's obvious to users. So growth of employers is a different animal, but for the actual users themselves, we're, we're in a good spot. But as we go, you know, as we're now in a world, I'm sure you guys are like we are and, and a lot of other people, you know, where human capital order is much tougher to find than risk capital. These types of programs become the choice for an employer as, is it a responsibility because you really love your workforce or is it an opportunity because it is something that's differentiated and valuable to as a choice because a Walmart employee could very easily go to Target. It could very easily go to Starbucks or very easily go where, you know, maybe they'll get something that they don't have otherwise. And, and this is an opportunity for them. Yeah. I think any employer that isn't offering, you know, modern financial benefits to help hourly workers, especially is already thinking about doing it because it will be a requirement of, of managing an hourly workforce within, I would say, even a few years. The, the key question for these employers is, am I going to pay for these benefits because my, I believe my people deserve that? Or am I going to sort of open up the doors for vendors who monetize my employees? Because they're, they're, that's, those are the two options that you really have. I am a little bit biased, obviously, but I think that any employer who chooses the latter, any employer who says, hey, like, sure, let's get you know, an on-demand pay company in here who's going to charge three bucks every time someone wants to get some of their pay early. Like that ain't the right choice. That's not going to deliver the enterprise value of making employees feel more valued because maybe it'll give you an initial bump when people are like, oh, oh, I can get my money immediately. That's great. Like I'll take this job. Once that sort of that honeymoon wears off though, and people start realizing that they're paying 10, 15, even like $30 in some cases just to get their money. That's not a good future. 
And so I like that we're, we're, we're still in the early days, I think of seeing which direction the market is going to go. And like the market has exploded. And, and I think this will be the new normal, but there's two different versions of where it could go. And, and I really want to see it go in the direction of employers should be paying for this. Yeah. I and mean, if you believe Gartner, it's going to go fast, right? It's really going to go over the course of the next couple of years. Yeah, totally. So I love your published values. Um, I am absolutely an ape on a pale blue dot. Um, <laughs> and having, having done startups, I, I think they're, they're dead on. But also having done startups, see how hard it is to maintain and manage that as you scale, right? Especially as you scale fast. So what's the experience been in, in, and where have you had to make compromises or have, have you been able to resist that? Yeah, I mean, you, you've hit the nail on the head. This is definitely the hardest part. Like the, the, the problem with values or principles is like they, are, they don't mean anything unless you're willing to sacrifice something in order to maintain them. Like it, it's very difficult when you're actually like dealing with the trade-offs. Like, do I hire this person who's really, really good at the skill that we need, but like doesn't seem to, to have the empathy that we're looking for? When you're actually in that moment, it's very difficult to get people to consistently do the hard thing, which is not compromise on the values, unless you've provided a framework which incentivizes them to do the hard thing. So one of the things my uh, people leader and I did really early on, I, I would say much earlier than a startup typically would, was we spent a lot of time designing a pretty detailed and robust hiring process and training everyone who's involved in hiring people at the company to follow this process and then actually tying you know how well they did on the process to the performance review cycle so you actually have that sort of that those dots connected from am i evaluating for these values correctly am i making the trade-offs the right way and is, am I going to get rewarded for that? Because if you, if you don't do any of that, like you can get by with really strong culture in the early days. For a little while. For a little while. But it doesn't scale, as you said. The only thing that scales is process and incentive structure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's good to talk about excellence and, and hiring elite people. But there's always that manager who's like, I just need somebody to do the job. And that is just culture poison and... Scale poison for sure. So um, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, you know, you're clearly the, the tip of the spear here with what the, the overall payments market could look like, right? I mean, you could be conceivably, as much as this wasn't the original purpose, it, it, you know, the unintended consequences, you could be dis disintermediating a whole bunch of people. Do you see long term you end up being, you know, an integrated service like a SoFi or do you, do you see really sticking to your knitting and continuing to expand around the original purpose? Well, so actually, the, what the, my original intention was to intermediate banks. Like the reason that you work with employers is because you sit at the top of the money funnel. You can control where money goes before it is deposited anywhere. And that is a, that is a very powerful position to be in. Now, with great power comes great responsibility. And that's why it is even more important for us to make explicit incentive alignment in, in our business to ensure that we are still doing, as we wield that power, you know, still doing the work that we set out to do and helping people build short-term savings and ensure that, you know, we're not profiting from people's struggle as financial institutions do today. 
But it was always the intention to build what I would call like a, a new kind of financial institution, one that is embedded with the employer, just like healthcare is today. Because with the employer, you have better data, you have better mo- control of, of money movement, and you have the opportunity to align the employer's incentives with the employees and use the employer's budget to help put more more money in employees' pockets. So like what that actually looks like, I don't know if there's like a concise way to describe it yet. Like we haven't, we haven't gotten that far. I, th- I do think it is a combination of sort of the two sides of the dichotomy that you asked, but I think where it goes really is, is as we start to really increase the velocity of our go-to-market motion here and we you know, get more and more Fortune 1000 employers signed up, the next big step for us is opening up the advantages of our channel to third parties, similar to like how Apple has their app store where, you know, especially early on, they really vetted what they allowed on the platform. But when you look out 10 years later, it's the apps that make the iPhone. The fact that you have these advantages of their platform, which now anyone can use to make great user experiences, like that really is what will cause a sea change in terms of the kinds of financial services that are available to this underserved market is you take these advantages and let anyone make a better financial service with them and then give them a really effective way to reach that customer as I think we are building. So we're, we're probably still like one or two years away from actually doing this, um, but we've already proven that our advantages are worthwhile. So it's, a, it's an obvious next step for us. Well, and clearly, the, you know, all the things that you talk about in those particular cases are all completely invested in a level of trust. And if you're able to build that through the relationship with the employer and the success in delivering on the proposition that you gave to your end consumers, they'll be happy to adopt the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So we'll exactly. certainly good luck with that. Certainly good luck with that. So my last question is always one that is a little bit different and it goes like this. So it's at the end of a long day and something good's happened and you're, um, and you're ready to just relax at the end of the day. What kind of music do you put on? So I, I really like good guitar. Like, I, I don't know if he's underrated. He's probably, probably correctly rated, but like I, I'm a big John Mayer fan, especially his new stuff. So that, that would be a big one. Music actually is not a, a big part of like how I relax though, to be honest with you, because you, the, the, I've, this is maybe like a bit more than you bargained for with this question, but like a big, <laughs> a big, a big part of what's difficult about this the startup journey is quieting your mind and not thinking about all of the stuff that you have to think about all the time and therefore not giving your brain a rest. And music actually doesn't really do that for me. The thing that does it for me is working with my hands. And so like, actually like I'll, with no music or even, you know, any, anything, any input really just go out and like work on like a, a, a building project that I've got going on outside or something like that. John, you've been great. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed the conversation. Certainly wish you all the best. Purpose is the best way to do this. And it sounds like you guys really have it well-centered and, um, and you're going to do great. I appreciate that. Thank you, Paul. It was a great chat and there was plenty to unpack, but here are my key takeaways. First, whether we like it or not, John notes that profit is the strongest motivator for people and business today, which means that a for-profit business must have the potential to drive change. Second, material change requires being laser-focused on a measurable problem, in this case, income volatility. They took a bottoms-up approach to solving the problem, and through plenty of trial and error, 
and frankly, a golden opportunity from Walmart, found an effective solution. Third, stay open to changing your original thesis when presented with new information. With a strong background in product design, John was relentlessly focused on the end consumer in the early days of building even. But they were late to the game on realizing that the employer was their real customer, and they needed to spend as much time on understanding B2B customer acquisition as they did on the end consumer experience. Fourth, things don't always play out in real life the way they do in research and planning. As even gained access to larger and larger numbers of users, they realized that the stakes and the urgency for end consumers with this problem was higher than they ever imagined. And fifth, designing a robust and detailed hiring process is worth the extra time it may take early on. John mentioned that by creating that internal framework, they are now able to connect the dots from hiring to performance reviews, making sure that the company gets the right people and the right values every step of the way. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Paul French, and I look forward to being with you next time. Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway, who believes that in order to create the most value for customers, partners, and employees, you need to open everything by securely integrating and moving data across a complex world of old and new technologies.